Thanks for being a cross-defense podcaster, for downloading the show and for listening. Hope you enjoy this episode. It's love in three acts. We talk about love on trial, love on the cross, and love set loose, the story of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Hope, hopefully this is an encouragement to you and a comfort to you. And if, the, if you think of someone else that you think this might be helpful for, don't forget to share it with them. Uh, and, uh, and let us know what you think. We always love the feedback. You can send that to us at wolfmuller.co. There's a little contact button, and uh, send, send us your thoughts. Thank you. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to Cross Defense. This most holy of times, most holy of seasons. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and today's show... Love in three acts. You know, one of the things I do in cross-defense, thinking about the show each week, is I think, what stories can I tell you? And it simply occurs to me today that there is no better story than the story of our Lord Jesus, his trial, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to give our imagination, our attention, our ears, and our hearts to this account so, Act One, Love on Trial. The story begins in eternity, but I suppose we're going to begin it more recently in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an old garden. You can visit it now, and there are olive trees in that garden that would have been there to hear the prayers of Jesus, over 2,000-year-old olive trees. This is a most ancient of gardens, and Jesus would go there often with his disciples. It seems like Jesus liked to pray outside. And so after he had washed his disciples' feet and he had given them his body and his blood to eat for the forgiveness of sins, they left Jerusalem singing a hymn, and they went down through the Kidron Valley and up to the side of the Mount of Olives to this garden. And there Jesus took three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and took them a little distance away. And then Jesus went some more distance, a stone's throw away, and he began to pray. And dear friends, I I want us to think carefully about this prayer. Three times Jesus prays, and he says, if. Father, he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, what's the cup that he's talking about? The cup is the cup of suffering that he's about to endure the very next day on Good Friday on the cross. The cup is the cup of, of God's wrath. It's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of, of, of enduring the anger of God for your sins and for mine. And Jesus says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, a couple of things on this prayer. One, we know that apparently it's not possible for the cup to pass from him. Jesus did have to suffer the wrath of God in our place. There was then no other way for us to be saved, rather, uh, to, to be rescued from our sin and death than this cup, than this suffering. But the more interesting thing for us to consider is why Jesus had to had to pray about it. I mean, where does that if come from? Doesn't Jesus know? Doesn't Jesus know that it's not possible to, to win the salvation of humanity in any other way than this? I think it's one of the great mysteries of the faith as we think about the, the personal union, how Jesus is both God and man, separate, distinct, but joined together in the one person of Christ, that Jesus in his humiliation can can separate from himself the things that he knows. 
So Jesus knows that there is no other way for man to be saved. But at this moment in the garden, in this agony, as he's sweating, sweating blood, as he sees the suffering that's about to happen, and, and, and we know from Hebrews that he despises the shame of it as he sees this, and he asks the Father if there's any other way, that he doesn't have the comfort of knowing that, no, this is the only way. He simply has to rely on God. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He prays, he stands up, he goes, and he finds Peter, James, and John, and instead of praying, they're sleeping, they were tired. He wakes them up. Hey, guys, I need you to pray with me. The spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. Watch and pray for an hour, just an hour yet. So Jesus goes away and prays some more. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he comes back and finds the disciples sleeping again, so he lets them sleep. And he goes and he prays a third time. Not my will, but thy will be done. And he commends himself to his heavenly Father, and he stands and he goes and he finds the disciples and he rouses them and says, Wake up, the time has come. Here come the bandits with Judas at the head and he comes and gives just imagine it in the dark they don't know who to arrest and so he goes and grabs Jesus and gives him a kiss and they go to arrest him who do you seek Jesus I'm he and they fall over and Peter's slicing the guy with the sword and he fixes Malchus's ear Jesus heals him and he says let these guys go and he hands himself over and so they bind him and they lead him to the house of Annas the father-in-law of the high priest and this is going to be the first of the five trials of Jesus. It starts, I suppose, it depends on how we're counting time. In the Jewish matter, uh, way of counting time, we're already on, at the beginning of Friday. Remember, the day starts when the sun goes down, when you can see three stars at a glance. That's when the new day is. Our, our reckoning would probably be late on Thursday night. And Jesus is going to be tried all through the night. First to the house of Annas where they're plotting how to make this thing go forward. I mean, they're breaking all sorts of laws. You're not supposed to have trials at night. You're not supposed to execute someone on the day that they're tried, etc., etc. But they're trying to figure out how to manage this stuff. So they do a little bit of work, and then they send Jesus with Annas, and they gather at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And this is going to be the second trial. This is the trial before the Sanhedrin. We'll remember that the Sanhedrin was, was invented at the time of Moses. It's amazing to think that this old and ancient and venerable institution started at the suggestion of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Remember, Moses was getting worn out from hearing all the people's complaints, and Jethro says, well, set people over the people and set them over the people, and he built this hierarchy of justice so that there was a way that only the trickiest questions would come to Moses and, and the judges below him could make the decision on some of the lower cases. This is the, this is the origin and the institution of the Sanhedrin. The ruling elders in Israel made up of the Sadducees and Pharisees and others. And now this thing that Moses had had instituted to, to see to it that justice was happening is being used for the greatest of injustices. But still they're trying to follow. It's, it's something to read, to read how the trial through the night went. They're trying to find accusations against Jesus. So they'll bring in one witness and another, and they don't agree with each other. One person and another, and they don't agree with each other. And finally, the, the closest they get is they say, this man said, tear down the temple and I'll build it in three days, which is what Jesus actually said. He was talking about the temple of his body, but that's, that's probably the thing that sticks the most. Jesus had said it three and a half years earlier, but so that sticks, and so they, 
they kind of get some momentum going, but they don't get enough to they don't don't get enough to condemn them. So finally, they say, "Tell us plainly, speak plainly. Are you the Christ?" And Jesus answers the high priest, and he says, "The day is coming when you will see the Son of Man sitting on the cloud in great glory." And the high priest tears his robe, and they slap Jesus in the face. What more do we need to hear? And so they they carry him off. Now, as the sun is coming up on Friday morning, to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, to understand what Pilate's doing there involves a, involves a little bit of a history lesson. Remember Herod the Great, the guy who tried to kill Jesus when all the babies were being slaughtered in Bethlehem? He died, and the kingdom was divided into three parts. His three sons were ruling, but the I think it was Philip who was ruling over Judea in the middle. He was just pretty much a failure and so after just a few years of his reign Rome took over and said we got it and so they gave uh, Judah Judea a governorship and Pilate then was the Roman appointed Roman ruler to rule over Judea Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and so he had the Roman custom of being the judge and the way it worked in the ancient world and this is really quite amazing for us to think about is that there was an open-air court and there was a seat where the judge would sit called the Bema seat. And, and it would be right there in the middle of everything. And when the judge was sitting on the Bema seat, then anybody could bring anyone to trial. And the trial would unfold right there, right in front of them. You can, you can see the Bema seat still. For example, if you go and visit the ruins of ancient Corinth, there's the Bema seat where, where Paul would have stood, to, who the Seneca's brother, uh, who was the who was the procurator there in in Corinth, or in Philippi too, ancient Philippi, the ruins there. There's a there's a bema seat. You can see it, and it's right there at the forum, and it's out in front of the government, uh, the palaces and everything. Well, so they had set that up in Jerusalem. So there was a judgment seat, and Pilate was apparently early in the morning there, sitting on the judgment seat, and they the Sanhedrin, these Jews, bring. Uh, Jesus before him and this is going to be his third trial before Pilate and he, they stand him up before Pilate and they make accusations of him and Jesus doesn't answer a word and and he says don't you know that I have the authority to set you free or to loose you and Jesus says you have no authority over me unless it's given to me given to you by the Father in heaven are you the king of the Jews Jesus says, are you asking this, or is another say this of me, and so forth. And so the, 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 the first trial before Pilate goes, and it seems like as we dig into the passion that, that Pilate is trying to figure out all along how he could possibly release Jesus, how he could let him go. In fact, remember, his wife has a dream, and I think this is going to be back when Jesus goes to Herod and then comes back to Pilate, and Pilate's wife says, let not, have nothing to do with that righteous man. But Pilate, as a case study, is particularly interesting. He is driven by fear. He doesn't want things to get out of control. So he tries to manipulate things. Instead of just being straightforward, he tries to maneuver and make things work out. And his name is now really synonymous with the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. Crucified under Pontius Pilate, even though if Pilate would have had his way, Jesus wouldn't have been nowhere near the crucifixion. But, but still, he didn't have the courage to stand up for his own convictions. He was led by the crowds. He was a politician, really. Anyway, Jesus is there early in the morning before Pilate. And Pilate learns that he's a Galilean. 
And Herod, who was the son of Herod the Great, who normally was up in Galilee and who ruled over that place, he he would, was down in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. And when Pilate hears that Jesus was from Galilee, he sends him to go see Herod. And so this is going to be Jesus' fourth trial. He goes before this pagan, hedonistic fellow, Herod. And Herod had wanted to see him. He had heard about Jesus. He had heard about John the Baptist. In fact, he's the one who saw, who was, uh, had overseen the death of John the Baptist. He wants to see who this Jesus is now, driven maybe by a bad conscience, maybe by this kind of perverse curiosity. Who knows what was in the mind of Herod. But Jesus goes before Herod, and he says, Jesus says absolutely nothing to him, doesn't even open his mouth. So now he's back, and that's his fourth trial. So now he's back before Pilate. And Pilate's doing everything he can to, to let him go. In fact, Pilate had figured this. He figured that the Jews had Jesus there because they were jealous. And so Pilate thinks that he can win over the Pharisees if he can get the crowd on his side. And so he, he tries this strategy. He's going to try to release uh, uh, the Jesus and, and have Barabbas crucified. Barabbas was a, was a robber, a murderer, and a violent rebel. And he was slated to be crucified that day. That's why there was, there was three people slated to be crucified. That's why there was three spots that were open, two thieves and this Barabbas. And so Pilate says, there's a custom that I would release for you one prisoner on the, on the Passover. It was, it's like presidents who, who pardon people at the end of their term. Apparently there was this custom in Jerusalem that the governor would, would release one prisoner on the Passover. And Pilate figured, no, this is going to be a, a no problem. In fact, when he, when he came up with this plot, no doubt his heart was cheered. He says, this is going to work for sure. I'll just get the people to cry out for, for Jesus to be released instead of Barabbas. After all, all the people had sung the praises of Jesus when he came into town. All the people like Jesus. They don't. It's the Pharisees that want to destroy him. And so he says, "This will be great." I normally release. Who do you want me to release to you? And they and and the Pharisees go around and they stir up the crowd so that the crowd, much to Pilate's chagrin, says, "says Give us Barabbas, Barabbas." You want Barabbas released? He's the worst. He, you should want him locked up. No, give us Barabbas. What should I do with this man called the king of the Jews? What should I do with Jesus? And they, the Pharisees stoke up the crowd and they cry out, crucify, crucify him. Pilate, even to, to seemingly to engender sympathy for, the, for Jesus, for the crowd, he hands Jesus over to the soldiers who go... And they strip him, and they, and they beat him. You know, the Romans had these whip, this terrible. They had this terrible whip, this leather thing with the cat of nine tails, and they would tear your skin off your back. It's a horrible sort of thing. They, they whipped Jesus. They put a purple robe. They put the crown of thorns on him. They put a staff in his hand. They take it, and they beat him on the head with it. And Pilate brings him out and says to the people, Behold the man. You can, st you can stand now in Jerusalem, in the place where this happened. Behold the man, he says. And there is no sympathy for Jesus. He, the crowds have turned. He, he's not going to find any supporters. Someone, someone pointed out to me, 
that Jesus is our advocate, the one who stands next to us to argue our case. But when he went to trial, nobody stood by him. Peter, no. He was watching at a distance, running off weeping because of his betrayal. John, no, the disciples, no, they're all gone. No one to stand by his side. So Pilate hands him over to be crucified. His blood be on us and our children, the people cried, and they took him. And they took him to crucify him. Well, that's love in three acts, act one. Love on trial. You're listening to the cross defense. We're going to go to break and we're going to come back with act two, which is going to be love on a cross. Stay tuned. Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, offers services every day of Holy Week through Easter Wednesday. Join us as the church year builds to its most beautiful crescendo, 7 p.m. every evening, noon and 7 on Good Friday, 7.30 p.m. on Holy Saturday, and 6 and 9.30 a.m. on Easter morning. Learn more at BethanyLCMS.org. Martin Luther called him a theologian by nature. He was Luther's close friend and contemporary. He was the only nobleman in Luther's inner circle and one of the first evangelical Lutheran bishops. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll visit with Dr. Robert Kolb, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Nicholas von Amsdorf, champion of Martin Luther's Reformation. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message. And pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news. AM850 in St. Louis, worldwide at KFUO.org. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today is love in three acts. Act two, love on the cross. It was nine in the morning when Jesus was crucified. Nine a.m., the 14th of Nisan in the year 33 A.D., Pilate had released Jesus to his own soldiers at the direction of the Sanhedrin to do with him as they would. And so they beat him. They stripped him, already weak. They strapped the upper beam of the cross to him so that he could carry it out to the quarry, to the trash heap, to Golgotha, where he would be crucified with two other malefactors. 
evil doers. <laughs> to be numbered with sinners. Jesus is so weak already. Hmm. He's so weak already that he can't he can't do the work of carrying the cross. And so one Simon of Cyrene is grabbed out of the crowd and he is forced to carry this beam, this cross beam, to the place where Jesus would be crucified. Crucifixion was an excruciating thing. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. So you had to be a slave or someone belonging to a conquered territory or something like this for you to be crucified because it was below the dignity of a Roman and just to think that there's probably not much below the dignity of a Roman, but it was below the dignity of a Roman citizen to be crucified. Paul says in Philippians that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even even to death on the cross. And, and this excruciating death is what he would now have to bear. Now, normally crucifixion would take days to kill a person, and you would be hanging there on the cross... Uh, for these hours, days, in fact, as a testimony of your own crime. That's why it's so important that the crime was written and posted over the head. It's like a billboard. So when people are walking into Jerusalem, you see the sign there. And there's a guy hanging there, moaning in agony, and it says over the top of his head, adultery or murder or thief. And you can... Be sure that when you walk into town, you all your plans to be a, a thieving, adulterous murderer are you're second guessing that when you see this agony there. So Jesus is led to be crucified, and Pilate has written the crime over his head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. When the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the Sanhedrin see it, they go back to Pilate and they say, "No, change it. You can't say King of the Jews. Say." Say, I, he said I'm the king of the Jews, and Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. You got what you wanted, leave me alone. I'm trying to appease my conscience in this whole mess. It wouldn't work. So Jesus is carried out to this place, or dr drug out to this place, already weak and bloody, whipped and, and beaten, and they lay him down, and they and they nail him to the cross. One nail through each hand, one nail through the feet to pin him there to die. And they lift him up and they lower the cross down into this socket of the earth so that it stands there. And there Jesus would hang in his agony for, for six hours, nine, nine o'clock until three in the afternoon when he would die. From this pulpit, Jesus preaches seven sermons. At least we have seven words, and three of them are prayers. The first word and the last word of Jesus are prayers to his Father. The first really kind of sets the mood. He, Jesus, looking down at the soldiers, unbelievable, and looking at the crowds of people walking by and wagging their heads, and even looking at the, at the Pharisees who are there mocking him, he, he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Jesus looks down and he sees Mary, his mother, with 
John, his disciple, standing there, and if there was any if there was any moment where a person would be tempted to be concerned about their own well-being, I imagine it would be during the excruciating first hours of crucifixion, but Jesus looks down and he sees Mary there and he sees John and he says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. These two thieves on the left and on the right of Jesus are railing at him, but one of the thieves sees the things that are happening, and he sees the way that Jesus is suffering, and he, he must have been suffering in such a way that this thief could, could hear the word of God in the life of Jesus, and he, and, he, and he stops railing against him, and he has a change of heart. In fact, he's, he has faith, and he says to the other thief, hey, you and me are suffering what we deserve, but not this guy. He didn't Look at him. He's right. He didn't deserve this. And he says to Jesus, this is an amazing request that he makes to Jesus. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If there was anybody in the earth who looked like he would never come into a kingdom, it would have been Jesus. But this thief knows better. That this is the Son of God. And, and Jesus says, truly, you will be with me in paradise. These are the, the first three words of Jesus, and we're going to skip the fourth word, which is perhaps the most important, and come back to it. Jesus, then in the midst of the darkness, seems like he goes silent from, from noon until three, and then at the end, it's the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll come back to that. And then, I thirst. They give him a little wine to drink. It's finished. And then his final prayer, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. In a beautiful introduction to Psalm 22, Martin Luther outlines the three types of suffering that Jesus endures on the cross. And I think this is very helpful for us to meditate on. Because I think when we think of the cross, at least when I think of the cross, I think of the physical suffering of the cross. But the point of the physical suffering is not our salvation. I mean, after all, the thieves next to Jesus were suffering also physically. Now, you might say, well, they weren't beaten or whipped, but they could have been. I mean, it is quite possible that people have suffered worse physical excruciating pain than Jesus suffered on the cross. I think that's a possibility. But the physical pain is pointing us to something deeper, something more profound. But the physical pain is helpful for us to meditate on because it's something that we can understand. We, I mean, you can imagine in some ways the pain of having a nail driven through your hand or having your arms out of socket or having to lift up on nails through your feet to catch a breath as the fluid starts to press in on your heart and it beats harder and harder. You can imagine thorns being pressed into your scalp and blood running over your eyes and all this sort of excruciating stuff that Jesus endured. You can imagine that in some ways. And I suppose that's helpful because it helps us get a sense of the other suffering that we can't imagine. But interestingly enough, the Bible spends very little time describing the physical suffering of the cross. In fact, the thing that it spends most of its time on is the second kind of suffering that Jesus endures. It's a shame of the cross. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. Now, what's the shame? 
We know that Jesus was stripped for his beating with the soldiers. That's what the text says. He was stripped. And then they put his robes back on. There's some question as to whether Jesus was crucified, in fact, without any clothes on or at all. That was the typical way that a person would be crucified. Now, some historians have indicated that the Jews had asked for special provision to have a small covering over the people who were being crucified so it wouldn't offend their sensibilities. In the ancient world, everybody would run around naked, and the Jews were always offended by that. And Maybe there's, there's a way that the, the loincloth that we normally have on crucifixion is a historically accurate sort of thing. Maybe not. We, we can't be sure. But we know that they were gambling for his under tunic, that Jesus was bare before, before the world. That's shameful. In fact, you know, we can think of that ourselves. If I asked people in Bible class this, I said, what, what, what would you prefer? That, I would, um, that you would be punched in the face or that you would be stripped in front of a crowd? And almost everybody says, punch me in the face. I'd rather have physical pain than shame. And that's the, see, see, this is the, Jesus is getting all of this pain. He has the physical pain, but he also has the shame of the cross. And I think the most shame, I mean, they, they put the purple robe on him. They mock him. They spit on his face. It doesn't hurt if someone spits on your face, but it's shameful. When, I mean, just think of the spit dripping down the beard of Jesus. It's just, it's almost unimaginable. And they're hitting him with a stick, and say they blindfold him, and they say, prophesy who struck you. And then as the people go by, they're wagging their heads, and the, and the Pharisees are there mocking Jesus. And they say, he trusted in God. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. If, if he, he said he was the Son of God, let God take him down now. Let, let, he saved others. Let him save himself. So they're mocking Jesus, but not just mocking him. They're mocking his Father. They're mocking God. So Jesus is, is, is shamed. Now, we also can, in some ways, understand the shame of the cross. And I don't wonder if, if Jesus gives us a little taste of this kind of pain, this physical pain and the pain of shame, that he tells us that he's suffering all of these things so that we could understand the third kind of suffering that Jesus is, is enduring on the cross which is not something that we can understand. In fact, it's not something that we experience, and God be praised. In fact, it's the pain that Jesus was experiencing so that we would never experience it. And that's the wrath of God. The Bible describes this in different ways. He was stricken by God and smitten, Isaiah 53, so that God actually smites Jesus, strikes him, hits him. He delivers, a, he delivers the blow of his wrath and his anger on Jesus. Or perhaps even more pointedly, the Bible tells us that he's forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. We have it quoted in the Aramaic and in the Hebrew for us from Psalm 22 in the Gospels, both in Matthew and in Mark. And this is the most important part because Jesus was not just on the cross suffering the wrath of Rome, the wrath of the Sanhedrins, the wrath of the Jewish people, the wrath of the Roman countrymen. It, he was not just suffering the wrath of humanity, the wrath of the devil, or the wrath of the world. Jesus was suffering the wrath of God. 
God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that Jesus is the Lamb of God who carries away the sin of the world. He carries our sin, and he's taking now on the cross our punishment for the sin, so that Jesus there, being the sin-bearer, is despised and forsaken by God. That's the darkness that covers the face of the earth from noon until three. Someone said that it's like God has turned his face on Jesus. I think this is an accurate way to think of it, that, that God says, I don't want anything to do with you, that this eternal, this eternal fellowship of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is now, is now, is now split up, and that Jesus is forsaken, forsaken by God. Now, I think it's a maybe subtle but important point to note that there are three prayers that Jesus prays on the cross. The first and the last are, My Father... Father, forgive them. Father, into your hands. But this third and middle prayer is not to my Father, but rather to my God. In fact, I think we can understand that it's not here the Father forsaking the Son, but in fact, it's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forsaking Jesus. All of God. All. That, that, that is the wrath that Jesus is suffering. And now, friends, I'd like to invite you to consider that this not only is a statement that Jesus makes, my God, my God, you have forsaken me, but in fact a question. Remember how we said in the garden when Jesus was praying, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, that even though Jesus knew almost his whole ministry, that there was no other way for him to, to win for us the atoning, uh, to do the atoning work and to rescue and deliver us, he knew that he had to suffer and die. He says, it's necessary for me to go to Jerusalem and be rejected and crucified. And on the third day rise again, he knew that that was necessary. But now in the garden, his humiliation reaches such a depth that he doesn't know if there's another way and he has to trust God. Well, now we reach an even more profound depth of humiliation that Jesus is there on the cross suffering for you and for me suffering the price that we owe to divine justice and he doesn't know why that this is I'm convinced a true question that if Jesus would have known while he was in the, those moments of darkness and suffering this agony of God, if he would have known that he was suffering these things for me and for you, dear listener, that there would have been some comfort, he would have said, it's only for three days. It's, it, it's, for, it's for the salvation of my beloved. It's to, win this, it's to win this great victory over sin, death, and the devil. I'm doing this for a purpose and for a reason. You know that if you know why you're suffering, that gives you confidence to, to be able to suffer. But anything that would have given Jesus any comfort at all was removed from him. That To say it as clearly as I can, that Jesus removes from himself the knowledge of why he's suffering so that there would be no comfort for him, none at all. All comfort is completely removed so that he can suffer a, 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 such a profound suffering and death that it can be the suffering that wins for you and me God's joy, God's smile and his mercy and his love. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you and you delivered them. They cried out to you and you heard their prayers. But me, I'm a worm and not a man, he says. Oh, so that Jesus suffers, and remember, Jesus suffers physically, Jesus suffers emotionally, or the shame of the cross, but Jesus, the suffering that wins for us salvation is that Jesus suffers the wrath of God. For you. 
Jesus prays Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could pray Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. That God will never leave or forsake us. He, he can give us that promise because Jesus hangs there all by himself, all alone, suffering everything for us. He didn't know why, but we do. Love in three acts, that's act two. Love on the cross. You're listening to Cross Defense. We're going to go to the break. Stay tuned. Act three is next. Love set loose. Stay tuned. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for... Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. Listening to KFUO on your smartphone is so easy to do. Smartphone assistant, play KFUO. Playing KFUO radio. You can also visit the place where you get your apps and download the KFUO app. You can also go to the KFUO homepage. Wow, the KFUO homepage is customized to fit your phone with an easy-to-find listening button. When you're on the webpage, you can browse for more information. You can listen to KFUO 24 hours a day at KFUO.org. Don't forget about Facebook, Facebook.com slash KFUO radio. Now you're just acting like a Know it all. Abraham Lincoln died on this day, April 15, in 1865. His assassination by Confederate sympathizer John Wilkes Booth was less than a month after beginning his second term. Lincoln's second inaugural address set a different tone than his first. At just over 700 words, it included three direct quotes from the Bible, Matthew 7-1, Matthew 18-7, and Psalm 19-9, and focused on the horrors committed by both the Union and Confederacy, and the emerging crisis of authority as both sides asked God for favor. Lincoln said, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. The Almighty has his own purposes. Engage with the Bible and its extraordinary place in American history. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. This is Love in Three Acts, Act Three. Love set free. Love, ah, love loose. Jesus died at about three in the afternoon. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he said, praying the Psalms, and then he breathed his last. Jesus had told his disciples that nobody takes my life from me. I give it up of my own accord. And this is important for us to remember. The death of, unlike our deaths, which are in the Lord's hands, the death of Jesus is his own act. He breathes out his spirit. He gives his own life for you and for me. 
And at that moment, the unnatural rending of body and soul occurs, and the the soul of Jesus goes to be with the malefactor and with his father in paradise, and the body of Jesus hangs limp on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea with Nicodemus, two of the Sanhedrin, two of the 70 who were believers in Jesus, run quickly to ask for the body of Jesus so they could bury him. The the sun is about to set and it's going to be the Sabbath and they want to make sure that there's no bodies on the cross hanging there for the Sabbath day, especially when it's such an important Sabbath week, the week of the Passover. Pilate is astonished that that Jesus has already died. Remember, crucifixion would normally take uh, days, hours for sure, and they had to go and kill the other guys being crucified by breaking their legs so that they could no longer lift themselves up to get a breath of air. But when they come to Jesus, they find that he's dead already. So the soldier puts a spear into his side, and out comes blood and water. In goes you and me, hiding safely in the side. So they hastily go and and take the body of Jesus off of the cross. You got to imagine it. I think it's one of the incredible things to imagine. They put the 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 rope or the cloth up over the crossbar, down under the arm of Jesus, around his chest, back behind his back, back over the crossbar, so that as they pry the nail out of his hand that's holding him up, and his body flops over like this, they're able to hold him up, and then they, with a crowbar and a ladder, pull the other nail out of the wood, and they lower the body of Jesus, and they wrap it in a cloth, and they take it quickly to a grave that Joseph of Arimathea had recently purchased, maybe even recently dug in a garden that wasn't far away. And they hastily wrapped his body, and they put it in the grave, and they seal it. They close the, roll the stone over the grave, and they put a seal on it. They were, in fact, it's an amazing thing to me that the enemies of Jesus were more worried about the resurrection than the followers of Jesus. Jesus had said time and time again that I'll be crucified, I'll die, and I'll be raised on the third day, and his disciples had not believed it. But the enemies of Jesus had, so they set a guard, and they set a watch, and they seal the tomb like this. Now, we want to just think, perhaps, to get the picture right, about how the tombs were, especially in Jerusalem, and in these kind of rocky places, uh, they would the, the tombs were not down into the earth but into the side they were like a cave and they would and the tombs would be uh multi use tombs you know we 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 hear the prophecy that jesus will will lie in a tomb that's never been used before and we say well uh what are the other options how can you reuse a tomb i mean we'd think that once you have a grave that's it you have a grave, but but in the ancient world you would reuse the tomb, and the and the way that it would work would be that you um, that you you had this cave, and it ha- would have maybe like two or three or four niches on the side, and when someone died, you would go and it would have a table in the middle, and you'd lay them on this table, and you'd prepare the body with lots of spices, maybe a hundred pounds of spices, all wrapped in these linen cloths, and then you'd set the body in one of these niches. And you'd seal up the tomb, and you'd hope that nobody else died for a few weeks at least, and the body could decompose to a, a certain extent. And then, and then you'd go normally on the anniversary of the person's death, and you'd go back to the grave, 
and you'd you'd open the grave and you'd go and you'd grab the body and you'd unwrap it and the thing that would be left would be the bones and so you'd take the bones and you'd put them in a bone box an ossuary you'd put the person's name on it and you'd put them on the shelf and now that little slab or that niche would be open for the next person that died so you have a family tomb and people would be going in and out of these tombs and all this sort of stuff it's not like it is today you put someone in a casket and you bury them and you cover them with dirt and you're never going to open that up again until the till the day of the resurrection you would go in and out of these graves, which is helpful for us to remember because when people went to find the grave where Jesus was, it's not like it would have been difficult. They would have, they would have known these things. You, you would go to the grave. And sometimes the graves ha- were more permanent structures than even the homes. The graves were made out of stone. The houses were made out of, out of wood. Anyway, they hastily uh, prepared Jesus for burial, and they put him on the in this new tomb, they put him to the side there, they roll the stone over it, they seal him up, and everyone goes away. They go away, they go away sad, that's not enough though, we need something more. They go away, they go away dark, they go away, they go away hopeless. You remember three days later when Jesus finds two of the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and he says, why are you so gloomy? They say, well, haven't you heard? Are you the only foreigner in these parts? Jesus has died, and we had hoped that he was the Messiah. Now, this is the thing, this is the attitude. We had hoped. We used to hope that Jesus was the one, but that hope has been, that hope has been crucified, died, and buried. We used to trust that Jesus was our Savior, but that trust had been, been crucified, died, and buried. When Jesus died, all, all, their love did not die. We know that. They certainly continued to love Jesus, but their hope and their faith had died. What do they have to hope and trust in? And they're afraid. Every time we see the disciples, we hear the stories of the disciples after the death of Jesus. They're all huddled in a locked room because they're afraid, because they know that as it goes with Jesus, so it'll go with them. And that if they, if Jesus is considered the author of this sedition and this rebellion, then they're going to be arrested, rounded up and arrested, and the things that happen to Jesus will also happen to them. It's why I think it's the women who go to find Jesus and do the, do the burial work on his body on Easter, the disciples are too afraid. But Jesus, meanwhile, takes his Sabbath rest. He stays in the tomb all through the, the, the night, the morning, the day on Saturday, and into the night on Sunday, and then early, early on Sunday, he says, that's about enough. I've had enough of this being dead. And early on Sunday, he is raised. His body and his soul joined back together, and he sits up. He takes off the the cloth that was wrapped around his head, and he folds it, and he puts it there, and he walks out of the grave. The Bible tells us, by the way, that it's the angel who moved the stone, and he didn't move the stone so that Jesus can get out. Jesus, now raised, is more real than the stone, more real than than the doors. He just walks through stuff and appears here and there just however he wants to. It's the angel who rolls away the stone so that the women can come in, and the disciples can go and see that Jesus is raised. It's beautiful. 
Now, there's a lot that happens. In fact, uh, um, we want to make note of this, that the skeptics will use the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus to, to show that the Bible contradicts itself. It's true that when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the resurrection, it is a chaotic account. But I want to give you the secret to making them all mesh together, and that is to note that the disciples are staying in different places. The most likely is that John and Peter are staying in John's house and that the other nine disciples are staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus over in Bethany. So when the women are going to the different places to find the different disciples and giving the different reports, there's actually two places where they're going until finally in the afternoon they all get together back in Mark's house in the upper room. So if you just keep that account in mind, that Peter and John are in one place and the other nine are in another place, then the whole Easter account just starts to mesh together really quite beautiful so that Mary Magdalene and the other women go early in the morning and as soon as Mary sees that the tomb is open, she runs to tell John and Peter who race to the tomb and Mary follows them back and they go and they see and John believes but nobody else does and then Mary's there in the garden after those two leave and go back to find the others and Jesus appears to Mary. And she's, we, she can't even see that it's Jesus. and her t- She has this veil of tears. She thinks that maybe it's the gardener come to tidy things up after the Sabbath or something. And if you, if you know where they've put him, tell me. I, I can go. And, and Jesus says to her, Mary, and that's it. He just says her name. And she turns, my Lord and my God. And there, there is Jesus standing before Mary raised. Oh, go tell Peter, the disciples, to meet me in Galilee, he says. And then he goes and he walks halfway to Emmaus. Well, no, he walks all the way to Emmaus with two other disciples. And what starts to, what starts to uh, become clear to us as we read the accounts of Easter Sunday is that Jesus is now beyond the reach of sin and death. Now, before we move too far from the empty tomb, let me make this point, and then I want to I start working on the story and the joy of Jesus in the resurrection. And that is that for whatever reason, we are not used to thinking of ourselves as as destined for the resurrection we normally think that when you die your body goes to heaven and your body and your wait 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 soul goes to heaven body goes to the ground and that's it that's how it is forever and ever but no you will be raised and so we have to know this that the same body that's buried is the body that will be raised and how do we know this because jesus took his body out of the grave so that your grave will be as empty as the grave of jesus that's our hope. That's our confidence. That's what we're looking forward to. Your, this body that you have now, you say, well, what if I want a new body? Well, it will be new. It'll be made new. It won't have any of the effects of sin. So you can rejoice in that. It's, it's raised perishable. It's, it's, it's sown perishable, buried perishable, raised imperishable. Perfect. A spiritual body even. Can you imagine it? A spiritual body. Your body without sin. That's, that's what you have to look forward to. And that's what Jesus has. There's this contrast in almost all of the resurrection accounts of the, of the almost, in some ways it's almost offensive, joyfulness of Jesus contrasted with the gloominess of the disciples. For example, Jesus is walking with two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he, he's playing with, he plays hide-and-go-seek with them he covers so that they can't recognize him. And he, and he walks up next to them, and, the, and he says, why are you guys looking so gloomy? You would, think, you would think that Jesus, on the day of his resurrection, would have something better to do than walk besides two of his disciples and pretend that it's not him. But no, he goes, all, he goes walking beside them, and, he, and they say, are you the only guy that doesn't know what happened? Don't you know about Jesus? We had hoped in him, and Jesus... 
doesn't reveal, say, guys, it's me. He, he continues to hide himself, and then he just starts teaching the Bible. He gives them this, this catechism lesson. He walks them through Moses and all of the prophets to show them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer before he went, entered into his glory. And as he's teaching these things, their, their hearts start to burn within them so that Jesus, they get to Emmaus, and they're pulling over to where they're going to go, into the house, and Jesus pretends, note that, he pretends like he's going to keep going, and they say, wait, come have dinner with us, and so Jesus goes in, and he, and they say, well, would you say the blessing? You seem to know the Bible pretty well, and so Jesus breaks the bread, and he shows himself to them, blam, and they say, it's Jesus, and then what does he do? Poof, disappears. Now, why? Why does Jesus just disappear and reappear? I think it's because if you could disappear and reappear, you would too. It's just awesome because Jesus is now raised. He's he's beyond the reach of corruption, beyond the reach of sin. He do, there's nothing holding him down, nothing holding him back, and so he disappears. And they run back to Jerusalem and they find the upper room. We saw Jesus, and they say, "Well, he was just here too. He just appeared in the midst of us, and then he disappeared." And what did he do when he appeared to them? He breathed on them, and he says, "Guys, guys, look at this." Put your hand in my side. Look at this scar. It's like the kids, you know, the kids on the baseball team showing each other their scars. Look at this one. And look at this one on my hand. Look at the put your don't be unbelieving, be believing. And he and he finds them fishing and he says, "Throw the net on the other side." And they drag all these fish in and then Jesus says, "Well, here's some fish already on the on the coals." He's Jesus is from our perspective, Jesus is playful. And why not? Because Jesus is beyond the reach of sin. He's beyond the reach of the devil. He's beyond the reach of the grave. He's beyond the reach of death itself. Jesus is beyond the reach of the wrath of God. He's done what he came to do. He's accomplished it. It's finished. He's won for you and for me the joy and the kindness of, ever, of, of God's everlasting grace. He's won it for us. And now he's delivering it to them, to us. To, oh, how can he not be joyful? Jesus is almost, I mean, it's, it, he shines so brightly, especially in the midst of the gloom of the disciples. But, but here's the point. It's not just Jesus that's beyond the reach of sin. Do you know where this, go, this is going? It's not, it's not just Jesus who's beyond the reach of the devil. It's not just Jesus who's beyond the reach of death. It's you too, you because you were buried with Christ, you will be raised with him. Jesus was there suffering all this stuff so that, so that you wouldn't have to. His death is for you. I remember seeing the Passion of the Christ with a bunch of people, and after we saw it, they, I asked, how do you feel? And they said, I feel horrible, because all these things happened to Jesus. But I said, remember, Jesus wanted these things to happen because he wanted you to be saved. He didn't want to be raised for himself. He wanted to be raised for you. So that this joy of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is meant for you, for your life, for your salvation, for your uns unassailable joy. That's love in three acts. Thanks for listening to Cross Defense.
Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Holy Week is a special time of year where we spend our life, our energy, our ears and our hearts meditating on the death and resurrection of Jesus. But all this is really our Christian life, not just this week, but our whole lives. We want to rejoice in the fact that Jesus was crucified and buried and raised all for us. Christ is risen, truly risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening to Cross Defense.